This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let me be frank with you and raise the issue that I think is on everyone's mind. And that is, what is the best way to defeat Trump? Welcome, and thanks for downloading This is Where Did You Get This Number, the podcast that takes you into the stories behind the data. I am Anthony Salvanto of CBS News, delighted to welcome back CBS News political correspondent Ed O'Keefe, just off the road from California this time, Ed? That's right. Uh, For the first time, we've had to go to California. Well, for the first time in modern times, at least, we've had to go to California for votes, not for money. It's good for your frequent flyer miles. It's excellent. Absolutely. (laughs) Early in the campaign, you'll never have to pay for a check bag again in your life by the time this is is over. Well, listen, let's talk about California because you're right. It's got this boatload of delegates, over 400. It moved up in the calendar. So now it's one of the early primaries. So suddenly we see all the campaigns going out there trying to court voters, right? Absolutely. 495 delegates, all but about 75 of them are the unpledged variety, meaning the kind that can be divided up proportionally depending on how many candidates hit a certain percentage. And so that incentivizes campaigning across California's 53 congressional districts and trying to divvy off uh, at least a few of those delegates if possible. Now, remember, California and a handful of other states will hold their primaries on Super Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020, next year. And thanks to California moving to Super Tuesday, I'm going to call it Super Duper Tuesday because the whole race could essentially be decided or winnowed down to maybe just three or four contenders on that night. And I think California, yeah, well, just real quick, they decided to do this in essence to have what happened over the weekend happen, which is to draw candidates to the state for something other than just campaign cash. And in conversations with voters there, they were just elated, frankly, to see them coming and to actually have access to them and not have to pay to see them by going to a fundraiser. So at this California convention where all the candidates spoke, it seemed to me you watched these speeches and you started to see the campaigns and the candidates lay out the narratives for the way they are going to approach this contest, what themes they hit, what issues they talked about, right? For some of them, it's talking about impeachment. For others, it's talking about health care. For others, it's talking about issues like criminal justice reform. But all of them uh, continue to see the lead up to the first debates as a real opportunity to road test some specific ideas and some broader themes 
as they continue to try to woo voters. And really, for, for voters in California, this was an introduction, really. So some of them just opted to keep to their biography and to those general themes. Others decided to dive into more specific ideas. Elizabeth Warren had a fantastic, probably standout weekend where she was able to discuss the, the litany of policy proposals and deeply thought out and prescribed policy proposals that she's advanced. Kamala Harris talked a bit about her teacher pay plan. Uh, Julian Castro talked about a police reform plan that he released on Monday. Uh, Harris also made very clear that she supports impeaching President Trump. Others didn't go there. Others were perhaps more critical of some of the health care proposals while embracing some of the more liberal ones. One of the things that struck me watching this is that there were some candidates who are not as not really high up in the polls, mind you, but some of them who said to this audience, look, we they thought we can't do national health care. We can't necessarily have socialism. That drew boost. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think the two that sort of had this happen to them more than anybody else were John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, and John Delaney, the former congressman from Maryland, two who are running far back in the pack, barely registering in any of the surveys taken so far, and who are moderate, have been critical of candidates like Bernie Sanders and others who are proposing Medicare for all and sort of align themselves with, if not outright socialism, then socialist-inspired ideas. For Hickenlooper, he made very clear he thinks embracing socialism is a bad idea. That went over like a lead balloon in a room that was packed with Bernie Sanders supporters. The next morning, John Delaney, speaking on the same day as Bernie Sanders, went after Medicare for All, saying that it's not the plan that's going to work. It's not practical. That, too, was poorly received. But by doing that, despite being booed in the room, they earned national attention for speaking some truth to power there and and making a counter-argument. I've checked uh, in the days since with both campaigns. The Delaney folks concede, yes, we've seen a little bit of an uptick in fundraising from people who might agree with us. The Hickenlooper folks wouldn't go there, but said that they've noticed that their press mentions have gone up. So in both cases, it may not have gone over well in the room, but it may have helped them make a broader point to the 49 other states uh, that they are a moderate alternative to the louder liberal voices in the field. And it also raises for all of us who are going to watch this unfold, the word socialism is certainly going to come up again and again, whether candidates are for it, against it, or, or what have you. What does it mean? And I think it clearly means something different to Democrats, certainly the Democrats in that room, than it does to a wider electorate. You know, to wit, we asked people in one of our recent polls what they thought of the term socialism, what it implied. And for Democrats, I can tell you, Ed, you know, the, the majority said it just meant more equal distribution of wealth and money, which in Democratic circles is obviously that people feel that is needed. And then you've got more equal opportunity for people, which 55 percent of Democrats said that's what the term socialism meant. And what struck me out of those findings was that it was an outcome as opposed to a mechanism. And then cheering for socialism or talking about socialism seems like it implies this is what we want to get to, the how we get there is more open for debate. And I think that's something that we watch going forward. Totally. You know, and you're right. It, it means different things to different people or they want to draw aspects of it, but not maybe embrace all of it. And yet when you're the self-described democratic socialist in the field and somebody starts 
criticizing socialism, uh, your supporters are definitely going to get their dander up and defend you, whatever it takes. One of the other overarching themes I think you saw out of this was how does a candidate say, I am going to be different from Donald Trump? Buttigieg is probably doing it most directly, most effectively by arguing that not only is he a generational change, but he is sort of a change in experience and focus, that he hasn't been a creature of Washington for the last several years and emphasizes his military service as well. Some of the younger members of the House, like uh, Seth Moulton or an Eric Swalwell, Swalwell was there, Moulton was not, talk about the fact that they are younger, they are of the next generation of political leaders. Uh, Moulton can also emphasize his military service, as can someone like Tulsi Gabbard. But for most of those that are leading the pack, they have Washington experience and several years' worth of political work under their belt. The exception to all that maybe being Elizabeth Warren, who really has only been in elective politics now for about seven years. And she spends a greater amount, greater amount of time, at least on the stump, talking about her early academic career, the fact that for a time she was a single mother, talks about her divorce, tries to humanize someone who, to many Democratic and more broadly just Americans, uh, voters, uh, is someone that is known as a policy wonk and a senator. And what she's done is sort of say, no, remember, I'm from Oklahoma. I worked in Texas and Pennsylvania and New Jersey before I got to Harvard. Before you'd even heard of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I was doing all these other things with my life as a working woman. And that is an argument or a sales pitch that I think has found some appeal and actually in some ways has helped color her for people who perhaps only knew her as someone who has an economic policy wonk. And I think part of that, as you watch a campaign unfold, is candidates need to fill in a backstory because, yeah. A, there's always been a need for what folks see as a personal connection to a candidate, right? It may be – this is something sort of I'm watching as a pollster. It may be especially important in an era when faith in, in confidence in institutions have declined – more so than ever. People have always been skeptical about what a politician could deliver in terms of policy. But it may be especially the case now that a candidate just has to have a personal appeal because voters are often skeptical. Yeah, we like that policy. Yeah, we like that policy idea. Some of it's a, a litmus test. But ultimately, they figure, well, there's got to be a candidate in there who agrees with me and is like me so that when new things come up, they're going to deal with them in a way that I, as a voter, would because, hey, let's face it, we don't really believe that they're going to be able to wave a wand and get all these policies passed. So yeah. filling in that personal backstory does seem to help people move in the polls. It does well, it seem helps, to... them, helps them do their shopping amid the 24 flavors they have right now uh, to pick a president and say, well, you know, I, I want a woman, but I want a woman who did X, Y, or Z. Or I'm looking for a younger guy, but I want it to be somebody with ABC in their background. So. You know, I, I think they very much understand that right now many Democrats are still in the very early stages of sorting through their options. When you were moving around the crowd, did you get a sense that people felt overwhelmed or almost the sense of, hey, there's too much choice? Why are all these people running? In a room full of partisan Democrats, not necessarily, though you would ask people, have you made up your mind? They'd say no. And then you'd ask, who are you considering? And they'd name three or four. Mm -hmm. So it shows you that they've perhaps winnowed the field in their own mind. Mm -hmm. I can remember a conversation with a couple from San Diego. She mentioned Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and I believe uh, uh, Buttigieg, 
Her husband mentions Beto because he's originally from Texas, but then says, but you know what? I think it's time for a woman. So, you know, you, you get a sense there of, of the sort of scattershot nature of this. The only real devotee I met, if you will, was a woman named, I believe it was Sharon from San Jose, who was a ha- hairdresser, told me she had canceled all of her Saturday appointments, which think about that for a hairdresser. That's yeah. a lot of them yeah. because she'd heard just the day before that the convention was being held in San Francisco and that Pete Buttigieg would be there. Mm -hmm. And she so desperately wanted to come see him in person after falling in love with him, basically, uh, by seeing him on TV. And I had not yet met on the trail anywhere somebody so eager and devoted to a particular candidate that they would rearrange their life, essentially, to be there. And again, that is a new and unique experience for a Californian, especially. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be an Iowan or a New Hampshire resident or a South Carolinian and say, oh, Buttigieg is coming to town. I'm going to see him tomorrow at the library or at the coffee shop. But in some of these states where this never happens, it's a real uh, unique opportunity and something that I think the Democrats there are quite grateful for because they know that their state is primarily a cash cow for these campaigns. They go to L.A., they go to San Francisco, they raise a lot of money, they get out. Now they're going to have to hold events in ways that they haven't before in the nation's largest state. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how they balance that need to focus on at least some sections of California with the need to intimately involve themselves in the situation in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina especially. Which is also interesting because it reflects or reminds us, I should say, of the way campaigns are run today. The, a generation ago, when you didn't have 24-7 media, when you didn't have the Internet and you could just download or something would show up in your inbox that introduced you to a campaign video from a candidate, that's where – Iowa mattered so much. That's where New Hampshire mattered so much because everyone else around the country said, well, these are the folks out there in those states who have actually met the candidates. Now you can, as as you describe in your story, now people can feel like they've all but met the candidate already and then go see them when they when they come to town. And that's a different dynamic. Totally. Totally. And I should clarify, obviously, we've met Beto or Bernie or Biden fans uh, who are at their events what I hadn't met was, was someone that so organically was really just upending their life to go see one of these people on a whim. Oh, and I thought that was that was the difference. That's that's the kind of sort of uh, grassroots love or fandom that an Obama or a Trump captured mm-hmm. eight, eight or four years ago. Mm-hmm. I hadn't sensed that yet um, with, with Democrats or anyone in particular. Um, but I just think it speaks to something that's going on with Buttigieg, especially that is sticking with people in a way that the others don't, at least not yet. And that's in my very limited scope of reporting in only a handful of states so far. Well, look, one of the things we pollsters have learned is that the folks who go out on the road and see this thing that's very difficult to measure, this passion, this intensity, you know, you all come back and tell us, well, the numbers are this or that. But really, a leading indicator is the the fervency. Is yeah, the people yeah. Who and look, see I that. mean, we, you we, you can vividly recall the conversations that went on after the sixteen elections about over relying on the numbers or the empirical evidence, and not as much on the anecdotal on the ground reporting and 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 sort of experiences that you witness or see. And and, and this was just one that's so far stuck out to me. Yeah. And I think we have to be conscious of it. You know, the lines and how long people are waiting to see people. The, yeah. Uh, 
the willingness to, again, cancel everything and go see somebody. It translates to action. Totally. And, and you know, sort of segue to action here or, or inaction, we're watching Congress wrestle with how much to investigate, how much to dig into the president. Obviously, there are some Democrats calling for impeachment. But as you mentioned at the top of this, Ed, some Democrats on the stump will talk about it and call for it and others will avoid it. You know, particularly, I think, because they're saying, well, we know that Democrats may be into it, but we certainly know that moderates, that independents, that the rest of the electorate is not so much. Is it playing as a kind of litmus test of party loyalty or is it playing to voters sense of, hey, wait a second, let's be strategic here. We've got an election in, you know, a year and a half where we can make things, you know, make things change. And that's the message. Or are there some candidates who are just saying, look, look, we we have to we have to go all in on impeachment at this point. You're getting closer to a point where you could you could measure everybody on a on a spectrum for sure. It's probably more the latter than the former, that they are concerned about bringing along the rest of the country, knowing that Democrats are already there. Many of them are, at least. But those that sort of look at it like Pelosi does, the speaker, when she says, we will hold him accountable. We are holding various investigations wide open. We're working on it. And we know that the American public over time has to be brought along through the slow, methodical work that we're going to do versus those that say he should have been impeached last week. And... I think at this point you could divide the field probably almost 50-50, but especially the members of Congress who are probably confronted with it most of all are almost entirely now on the idea that support what the House Democrats are doing and, yeah, he probably should be impeached. But it's true that you know not a majority of the country is not there, and Democrats have to win next year at the congressional and presidential level in parts of the country where an obsession or a total focus on impeachment is not going to fly. And that doesn't mean that the president flies either. But if you're going to win over people who might be open to voting for Democrats instead of the president, you're going to have to offer them something else. And look, that's exactly what worked for Democrats last fall, mm -hmm. right? Yep. They all acknowledged the president is a bad guy. We're going to, you know, don't like him. Don't like the way he behaves or talks. However, if there are things that I can work with him on regarding health care reform or taxes or trade or education, of course I'm open to that. you got to make a presidential argument that's similar to that if you hope to win back certain parts of Pennsylvania or Michigan or Florida, Arizona, and other places where Democrats want to either hold or expand their map. Well, health care, you know, say what you will about the polls, but health care keeps on popping up in polls now. Totally. And it's certainly, to your point about 2018, it certainly was number one, especially for Democrats and people who voted for the Democrats as they as they took over the House. That continues to come up. Um, Ed, I am going to wrap it up there. There's plenty to talk about, plenty more to talk about, but there are plenty more weeks as we, as you continue there to sure hit the road um, and, we, and we go forward. Ed O'Keefe, CBS News political correspondent. Ed, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. And that is going to wrap us for another episode of Where Did You Get This Number? I want to thank you once again for downloading. I want to thank my intrepid producer, Alan Pang, for pulling this together. If you like it, give us a rating. Please subscribe. And in the meantime, we will see you back here with more From the Road, from the 2020 campaign next week. Thanks again.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.